I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 as we get into God's Word and continue our series. And uh, we're doing a series in the book of Revelation, the first four chapters. And we're in the seven, we're talking about the seven churches of uh, Revelation right now. Uh, Someone said that the greatest threat uh, to spiritual health is not the opposition of unbelievers and the persecution that might come from them, but actually it's the, when we allow into the community of faith, those who are like spiritual Trojan horses, they come in secretly and disguised and, and uh, they sow seeds of destruction and disunity given the opportunity. Uh, And what is the destruction they sow? Well, it's in, in the church at Pergamum, it was compromise. A few years ago, uh, there was a TV show called 24. Maybe some of you remember that. Uh, Afterwards, several people said they binged watched that all the time. They loved that show. Uh, Each show represented one hour. So it was like a 24-hour period. And it was was a good show. But it was about a guy named Jack Bauer. It was played by Kiefer Sutherland. And uh, he was a federal agent that was supposed to protect this presidential candidate who had had a threat against his life. And um, he had even turned in one of the, his own men who was doing some really bad things. And, and even his boss came to him at one point and said, hey, you know what? You're honest to a fault. And it's fine to be honest, but just don't be so honest. And, and Jack Bauer exploded at his boss. And, and here's what he said. You can look the other way once. It's no big deal except it makes it easier for you to do something worse the next time. And pretty soon, that's all you're doing. Living a two-faced life. Because that's how you think things are done. You know those guys I blew the whistle on? You think they were bad guys? They They were bad guys. They were just like you and me. Except they gave up their morals that one time. Nothing will poison the body of Christ like compromise. And after looking at these verses that we're looking at today, um, we as a church can't say we haven't been warned because they're speaking to us. I want us to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us through these verses today. So here's what A.W. Tozer says about the problem of compromise today. He says, a new decalogue has been adopted by the neo-Christians of our day. Thou shalt not disagree. And a new set of beatitudes, too. Blessed are they that tolerate everything, for they shall not be made accountable. Well, depending on the circumstances that people are involved in, Compromise can be good or bad. So we're not talking about, about good compromise. Good compromise, godly compromise, means coming to an agreement by a mutual give and take to find a way between extremes. So this can hold together friendships. It can hold together marriages. It can hold together a church. So there is a godly compromise. That's not what we're talking about this morning. Uh, What we're talking about today is worldly compromise that can be defined as a shameful or disreputable concession. 
In other words, it isn't concerned about the truth. Uh, it, 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 and what, what the truth does and what, you know, what people do, it, 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 it does do damage to relationships. It eats away at the truth, especially biblical truth. So this is the heart of what Jesus is saying to the Christians at Pergamum. Uh, this was a wicked city, and the church, this is the third church that we're looking at, was surrendering their doctrine and also their morality to the standards of the world. And this is a warning for us. So Jesus dictates seven letters to John that go to these seven churches in what is modern-day Turkey, uh, what in the Bible times was known as Asia Minor. And in order to get to the heart of these verses, we're going to look into some of the background, but let's read the passage first. So Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is God's word. So at the beginning of verse 13, you have this phrase that Jesus says to the church, I know where you live. Um, if you owed someone a lot of money uh, and they said, look, I know where you live, that might not be so comforting. But I think it was meant to be comforting to, to the people in the church in Pergamon because Jesus is saying, I, I get it. I, I know where you live. I know the kind of environment you're in and how tough it is to walk with me in that environment. So this begs the question, what was the environment that they lived in in Pergamum? So we're gonna look, and you've got it on your outline, a Pergamum city profile. It was a fascinating city that was hugely influential. Uh, it was north of Ephesus and Smyrna. We've already looked at those two churches and about 15 miles inland. Uh, Pergamum was the capital of the entire area and so it was the seat of the Roman government in Asia Minor. And in those days, the Roman governor had his headquarters in the capital, and that was Pergamum. It was, the only, it was only the Roman governor, by the way, and you've, this is again in, under that profile, who had the power of what was called the Ius Gladii. And that literally meant <clears throat> the justice sword. In other words, he was the only person who could, he was, he was in control of capital punishment. He was the only person who could put someone to death. Uh, and so by 
wearing the sword, the Roman governor was saying, I'm in charge here. I'm the ultimate authority over your life. I have your destiny in my hands. And that, by the way, in the account of Jesus is why they had to go to Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of that province, before they could get permission to crucify Jesus. And so the Christians at Pergamum were literally feeling this because some of them were being put to death because of their faith. Even with that small background, you understand what Jesus says at the end of verse 12, when he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus, by saying that, is saying, it's not the governor who has the authority, the ultimate authority in your life. It's me. I have the ultimate authority. I carry the double-edged sword. I'm the one who has the final say over your birth, over your, over your life, over your death, over your destiny. So remember that. And, and maybe God wanted you to hear that this morning. Because, you know what, whatever you're afraid of, the, the government does not have the final say in your life. Neither does your family. Neither does your boss or a teacher. They don't have the final say over your life, over your destiny. We think we get so afraid of that. Sometimes we, we think, man, who's, who's going to control? We're, we're in such a sad situation uh, in this or that circumstance in our life. But you, this is on the outline. Your destiny is in the hands of someone who is all-powerful and who loves you. And if you just came here to hear that this morning, that's what you need to hear and understand as we look at this passage. That's the point that Jesus' words, I think, were giving to this church. We are in his hands. You are in God's hands. So let's go a little further into Pergamum. The religious and political center of Pergamum and the region was perched high above, a thousand feet above the city on this mountaintop that looked and loomed over the city. And Pergamum up there has this spectacular uh, theater. It seated 10,000 people. It's super steep. It's the steepest one in all of of, uh, Asia Minor and Turkey today uh, among these seven churches. And I've been there. I I was not about to to climb up. You fall down, you're going to stop at the bottom of the hill. I mean, you you are not going to stop. It's super steep. and on that temple also, the temple was this, the most sacred spot. It had all these temples of so many different gods that were up there. And these are some examples. But Dionysius, or Bacchus, the god of wine and pleasure, was up there. A temple to him. And to Asclepius, the god of healing. And Serpus, uh, the Egyptian underworld god. And Zeus, who was the, 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 the god of all the gods, small g. And Jesus has a very important word to the people at Pergamum. And he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And, and it was, um, that's the, that's, that was Pergamum. So you remember the, the symbol for Ephesus? It was the honeybee. And, and the symbol for Smyrna was a crown. The symbol for Pergamum is the serpent. It was a snake. Why? Because snakes were featured in almost all of the rituals in all of the temples at the top of that mountain. Um, There was a a coin with a snake crawling out of a basket. 
And that was the, to the uh, God of, of, of Bacchus. That was used in a ceremony for him. In fact, we get our English word debauchery from Bacchus and from that temple, the God of pleasure and orgies. Uh, on another coin, there's a serpent coiling around a staff. You might even recognize that because this is where the medical symbol of a staff and snake wrapped around it comes from. It comes from right here, the, the, the worship of Asclepius. Uh, that was a temple that you could seek healing from anywhere in the, in the known world. They would come there to seek healing. And they had this crazy ritual because they would, and when it was pitch dark, they would have everybody lay down on these cold marble floors and they would release snakes. And you were supposed to be perfectly still, but if a snake found its way on you and fell asleep, then you could know for certain you would be healed. Now after hearing that, uh, maybe your annual checkup with a doctor doesn't seem so bad. That would be horrible. That's like a a nightmare kind of a thing next to that rattlesnake we looked at a couple weeks ago, or last week. But anyway, the most common image in scripture of Satan is what? It's a snake. And so I think the implication is that Satan has Pergamum by the throat. Any Christian or Jew living in Pergamum would have seen that, would have recognized that and all the evil. And there are several ruins of the most impressive temples of Caesar. And these, they were also up on that Temple Mount. The ruins were massive. Even the ruins are massive and intimidating. Um, and, and as we've written, as we've mentioned before, what was written is that everyone was required to worship Caesar as Lord and God. And if you didn't, you were killed. So in verse 12, we have the one description of Jesus in these verses, and this is number one on your outline, and that is that Jesus is the judge with a sharp sword. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. So again, it's Jesus who is the one who controls our destiny. Someone described this as always settling for less than God's best. That's what compromise is. That's what the, this church was struggling with. It's like a cancer that spreads through healthy flesh and it strangles the truth and it ultimately destroys the truth. You need a scalpel to remove a tumor and Christ is the great physician that has the double-edged sword who is able to, to treat this disturbing disease. Jesus begins the letter with setting himself up as the judge. And he he says he will make war against his enemies at the second coming. And that he will defeat them with the word of judgment. And it points back to Isaiah's words in Isaiah 49 when it says that uh, of Jesus, he made my words of judgment as sharp as a sword. That's where John gets the language from that he's using here in Revelation. The sword from Christ's mouth symbolizes judgment. And it's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews had in mind when he says about, in, in, of Hebrews 4.12, and this is from one paraphrase, he says, God means what he says. What he says goes. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. 
Nothing and no one can resist God's word. We can't get away from it no matter what. So the point is clear. Christ's warfare against error and against evil will be swift. It will be decisive. And that leads us to number two on the outline, and that is that Satan dwelt in Pergamum, but so did Christ's bride, the church. We live in a place here where there's pressure from all directions for us to deny the Lord. Think of all the evil influences that are around us that make it hard to, to sometimes be faithful, that make, make it easy to abandon our faith. So how do the Christians in Pergamum deal with the pressure? They lived where Satan has his throne. Sometimes you might think the same thing. We live where Satan has his throne. I'm sure there are lots of cities that feel that same way. Jesus acknowledged the challenges that they faced. And the Greek word for live or dwell, it says where they live, where Satan dwells, is, where Satan has his throne. The, the word for dwell there implies that they've taken up residence and they plan on staying. They're going to stay for the long term. They're, they're committed to stay. You, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, he says. So even though Pergamum was the state it was the seat of Satan's authority, uh, the church didn't try to escape the extreme pressures. They, they wanted to be faithful. They, were, they made it through the hardship. They, they decided to stay put in the midst of violence, in the midst of the noise, in the midst of the corruption. They stayed right where God wanted them to be so that they could be a light. You know, sometimes, you know, I, you've heard the news, all the people leaving California because they don't like it here. I'm glad that some people, that some Christians stay. I'm glad you've stayed, that you're here right now because God wants to use you to be a faithful witness for him right here. And then Jesus gives us a specific example in verse 13 of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. We don't know a lot about Antipas. This is the only time he's mentioned in scripture. But there are, uh, there are texts outside of the Bible that we can learn something from Antipas. He was apparently the pastor at Pergamum. And they came to him and said, we need you to deny Christ and we need you to pledge allegiance to the Caesar. And he said, I refuse to do it. I don't want to do it for my people. I love my people I'm, that I'm pastoring. I love the Lord. He's saved me. Why would I ever deny him? And so they put him to death. And the tradition has it that they put him in, a, in a, a bronze statue. They put him inside of a bronze statue of a bull. And they lit a fire under it until he died. Uh, being roasted to death, basically. I know that sounds pretty grim. But that, that was what Antipas went through to stay faithful to the Lord. And, and, and the Lord gives him that credit. And what's amazing is that Jesus describes Antipas as a faithful witness. And what's amazing about that is that's the exact same term that's used back in chapter one, verse five of Jesus. And also in chapter three. And so Christ was faithful to God as a witness unto death. And Antipas was Jesus' faithful witness unto death. Jesus was honored, he honored the Father even in his death and Antipas honored Jesus even in his death. Jesus is talking about all these horrific things that, that came from up the hill to, down to Pergamum uh, and was aimed particularly at the church. 
And remember what Jesus says to them in verse 12. I know where you live. Jesus is saying, look, I understand the cultural pressures. And I appreciate the fact that you are not giving in. That you've stayed faithful through a lot of persecution. Jesus gets it. And he's saying to the church there, I understand, I know you live in a particularly satanic place. And Jesus says the same thing to us. I know where you live. I understand your situation, that it's, it's not like it is in uh, some other state, in Montana, in San Diego. San Diego's got particular struggles that you struggle with here, and he wants to give us the strength to get through the struggles that he knows we're going through right here. Jesus says to us, I get it. I understand what's going on, where you live. And then verse 14, he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And that leads us to number three, Pergamum is condemned for compromise. Pergamum is condemned for compromise. There are a lot who are faithful, but there were some who were not, who were not faithful. And within the church, there was a group of people who were all too willing to accept what the world was teaching. And the health and the vitality of the church was at stake. And these particular people were saying, in essence, let's go along to get along. Let's just go along with what the world's teaching. And the church was now doing exactly what the world would applaud. And they were open-minded and they were progressive and they were tolerant in the worst of ways. And Christ was not pleased. And there were two areas in particular that were infected. And the first one, we can learn, and we can learn from, this, from this church as well. And that is that we must not compromise our morality. Some at Pergamum were following the Lord, but others were following the teaching of, of Balaam. At least symbolically they were following that because they were, uh, they were applauding sexual immorality. The story of Balaam is found in Numbers. It's a great story to read. I hope you can, I wish we had time to, to look at it today. But the Lord specifically says that those who followed Balaam were, were adulterating themselves spiritually and adulterating themselves physically, sexually. And verse 14 explains what Balaam did. He taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So there were some in the church who, who were trying to serve God, for sure. But in the process, they were allowing the culture to shape their thinking and their lifestyle instead of allowing God's word to do that. And so that's always a question that we need to ask. What are you allowing to shape your life? Are you, allow, are you allowing your culture to shape it? Or are you allowing the word of God to shape it? And I hope you get a good meal on Sunday morning spiritually, but I, I, it's not enough to sustain you throughout the week. It'd be like eating one meal a week physically and, and saying, well, that should be good until next week. No, you've got to eat during the, the week. You have to be in the word on your own during the week. Memorize God's word. Hide it in your heart. And you need to ask yourself that question. Who's shaping what I'm thinking? Am I taking all that I see in the world and on the news through the filter of God's word? Or am I just accepting it? 
They neglected in Pergamum the truth that we know in Romans 12 too, to not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good and pleasing and the perfect will of God. And they'd forgotten the warning that James, Jesus' brother, gives us in James 4 when he says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? And he emphasizes, he said, I'm gonna say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, James says, you make yourself an enemy of God. So are you a friend of the world? Or are you a friend of God? Satan couldn't defeat this church from without. And so he did it by having the church make accommodations from within. And Satan did it in Pergamum with some deadly success. The church was welcoming and affirming to those who were sexually immoral. I read a letter from a pastor who was in Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, during Stalin's reign. He said it was the worst time. He said, I had two KGB agents. They came to me and said, we'll take care of you. You stay as pastor of that church. But once a week, you give us a report on every one of these Christians. Work for us. The pastor said, I can't do that to God. I can't do that to my people. So they sent him to Siberia to a prison camp. And he endured the cold and the hard labor for 10 years. And he was on a team of people that included some other Christians that went around a 60-mile radius of where the camp was. And they built homes for people. But he said, we fellowship together and we did evangelism together when we went out to these towns, even though we were part of this prison camp, building these homes for people. And when I got out of the camp, there were dozens of churches that were all around this area because we had planted them. So God can take even a difficult situation that you're in right now and he can use it for his glory. He wants to build his church. He wants you to share the good news of Christ with the people that you're around. You know, when you decide to be a person of integrity, and you say, I'm not going to compromise, you may lose something. You may even lose a lot. But through those things, God will fulfill his eternal purpose. The second thing we learn from the church at Pergamum is that we must not compromise our theology. Look at verse 15. Likewise, you, have also, uh, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So there were some at Pergamum that followed Jesus. There were some at Pergamum that held the name of Balaam. And there were some that followed the Nicolaitans. We don't know a lot about them. They were in the Ephesian church back in verse 6. But these are the only two references to them in the Bible. And so the Ephesian church rejected them. Pergamum didn't. Pergamum accepted them. They embraced them. And it seems as if the teaching of Balaam was very similar to what the teaching of the Nicolaitans was. Uh, maybe even identical. The doctrine didn't matter to them, and behavior and how you acted mattered even less. So what was happening day after day is that in Pergamum is the distinction of the church and the world will be, were becoming more and more blurred. We're to be a light, not a dim light, but a bright light for the Savior. One commentator put it like this, worldliness and tolerating just about everything had rushed into this church like a flood and the church was on the verge of drowning. So what's the way out? 
The only way out, number four on your outline, is to repent. If there's no repentance, Jesus says two things will happen. First, I will soon come to you. And then what's next is maybe the saddest image in the whole Bible. And that is what, what he says, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I can't think of a worse image than Jesus fighting against the church. His bride. Man, as a church, one of our goals is to be gentle and loving, to have open arms to invite people in. That's absolutely what we must do. But we invite them in so that they might understand the reality of their sin and that they might see that that Jesus is the Savior. God's provision is through the death of Christ on the cross. We can't defeat error by playing around with it. This is one of Satan's most effective weapons. And think of the the nature of compromise. And these aren't on your outline, but here's the nature of compromise. Compromise never occurs quickly. And so you hardly notice the change. You know, you saw a picture of one of our members, Matt Schellenberg, up on the video that Pastor Zach showed of he was down with the youth in Mexico. And when he, he's the one that did the wood work on either side here. And I talked to Matt and he said, man, he said, I'm trying super careful to make sure every level is, every one is perfectly level because if you get off early, you can really see it at the top. And it's the same thing here. This is why the writer to the Hebrews says to us, and God says to us through this writer, for this reason we must pay close attention, closer attention, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. We don't drift away from from what God is teaching us in his word. And another characteristic of compromise is that it always lowers the original standards that you once held. And again, the writer of the Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. It's in Hebrews 10. Yes, we should share the truth in love, but we should still speak the truth. Jesus said it like this in John 15. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, and because of this, the world hates you. That's what Jesus said would be our experience in the world, that the world would hate us. So don't be surprised when the world hates you. Chuck Swindoll said it like this. He said, compromise eventually leads you to accept what you once rejected and even thought repulsive. It has been well said that one generation tolerates what the next generation will accept and what that generation accepts, the next generation will celebrate. Jesus gives us the antidote very clearly, very, very directly. Repent. It's a command. I love what Martin Luther said, that we are to live lives of repentance. That everything, we we should always be confessing our sin before the Father. And repentance means that we recognize that what's in our heart is not glorifying to God. And so we pray what David prayed in Psalm 51 when he says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. 
And we confess our sin because we know God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we change our ways and we do it now. It's a 180 degree turn from the way we were going. We were going one way and we do an about face and we go the other direction. Repentance is a word of hope. It's a word of grace because it means even though you feel lost, even though you feel like you've done something that God will never forgive, God says to you, repent. And that means there's hope that you can change. That means there's grace when you do the 180 to receive you. And that's God's grace to you. Ignoring God can happen slowly, but repentance doesn't have to. Repentance can be right away, immediately. And then finally, in, verse, in um, the, the number five on your outline, three gifts that are promised to those who overcome. Look at verse 17. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. And manna, manna is symbolic of restored fellowship. Manna was this supernatural, delicious bread that came down from heaven. Uh, I love the, the, the literal Hebrew translation of manna is, is what is it? So these, the Israelites got in there like, what is this? What is it? Manna, manna. Um, but Jesus is saying here in essence, you may think that you're missing out on all these tremendous feasts that are going on on all the temples up on the top of this hill, but you have a relationship with me. You're not missing out on a thing. And then secondly, we're given a white stone, which was used to give an invitation to people to come to parties up at the temple. And this white stone symbolizes forgiveness. Verse 17, I will also give that person a white stone. And, and Jesus, again, is saying, look, you think you're missing out on some of these amazing feasts that are up there? I am giving you the ultimate invitation to the ultimate feast in heaven with me for all eternity. That's a party that lasts forever. And then finally, Jesus says, I will give you a new name, which is a new identity in Christ. To, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus said to them, I have a, a new name I have chosen for you. And what a beautiful truth that, that God is saying to you. Is I've, he's saying to us as believers, I have chosen your identity for all eternity. And this is a reference to the, to the Hebrew scripture like Isaiah 56, 5 that says to them, I will give a name better than sons and daughters. Better than being a son or a daughter? Wow. That, that's what God's promised you as a believer. And you know, think of all the names that people might call you as a Christian. Maybe they call you a Jesus freak. Uh, maybe they call you a, a weirdo, whatever it is. And maybe you have, what the, you have names for yourself. What are the names you have for yourself? You think, well, I'm a, I'm a klutz, I'm a, I'm a hypocrite, I'm a, I, I'm, I'm a no good guy, or I'm a no good gal, I'm a loser. No, Jesus says, don't let your work or your society or your past, your failures, your family, don't let anything else define you, let me define you. That's what he says to you. I am the one uh, who defines you forever. I'm calling you beautiful. I'm calling you courageous. I'm calling you beloved. I'm calling you something closer to me than a son or a daughter. You know, the, 
Dodgers uh, old manager, Tommy Lasorda, had a guy who came to pitch for him uh, whose name was Oral Hershiser. And he said, you know, Oral came with this attitude kind of down on himself and, and, uh, and he was a little bit discouraged. He's kind of a scrawny guy. And he said, you know what? Even though he didn't exhibit anything like this, he told Oral, I'm never going to call you Oral again. I'm going to give you a nickname. And he wanted him to live up to that nickname. And he gave him the nickname Bulldog. And so he said he was anything but a bulldog when he started. But boy, when it was time for him to come in, he goes, okay, bulldog, it's your turn to pitch. And, and he pitched in some, some great games. I remember him uh, pitching and thinking Oral was a funny name. But I'd, I'd hear him referred to as bulldog. Um, can you imagine if they're playing the New York Mets and Davey Johnson, the manager of the Mets, says to his famous pitcher, Ron Darling, okay, Darling, you go get him. And on the other hand, uh, uh, Lasorda saying, okay, Bulldog, you get in there. You, you kind of almost know who's going to win just from the, from the names. Uh, and he was a great pitcher. But, but uh, do you ever watch the news today and you just think, you know what? This world has gone mad. Uh, maybe we've come to just accept it, but we can't do that. It's like we wink at sin and we glorify rebellion. That's what our world is doing. And what we see here as Jesus' attitude towards the two-faced people is to sit up and take notice of them. And this is the last thing on your outline. Compromise is often the first step to total disobedience. Think of David. He didn't commit murder and adultery all at the beginning in one weak moment. You can read all about it in 2 Samuel 11, but he, he was shirking his responsibilities as king. He was allowing what he saw with his eyes to be opened up, and he, he didn't care. And, and he was unethical in how he used his servants. And all of this, these small steps didn't appear to be important matters at the time, but they led to David's total collapse. So what are the small areas of compromise that you're struggling with? Maybe it's the language that you use. Maybe it's the attitude you have toward your boss or the people that work for you. Maybe it's just slight exaggerations on your resume or cheating on a test or secret peeks at internet pornography. Or maybe it's a little harmless gossip now and then. What's that going to hurt anyone? God calls us. Jesus calls us here to live a life of holiness and a life of obedience and a life of integrity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to keep that in our minds this week that you call us to live a life of holiness and integrity. Lord, help us to live, uh, like Martin Luther said, lives of repentance. We need to have a, a mind shift. We need to have a heart shift continually back to you. I pray that right now, Lord, we would respond by faith to this and run into your arms. Maybe some for the first time. Father, we thank you for loving us, for dying for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins and join you in your forever party. Help us to remember to be defined by you, not our society, not ourselves, 
but defined only by you. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we'll end with the words from the end of Revelation. He who has said all these things declared, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.